0: doubtful and cynical insecure and lonely narcissistic and greedy restless and exhausted these are the kind of disciples the world creates and as i read that i thought this this is the world we're in this is these are my these are my friends my work colleagues that i've had in in the past people i know you know we we're basically always saying i'm exhausted you know, it's almost a badge of honor to say you're exhausted, you know, I've been busy, I'm exhausted. We're always chasing after something, we're restless, we're never satisfied, we're discontent, really, really marks us out. Um, instead of being giving and generous, we're always kind of getting and greedy. Uh, uh, massively, I would say, a, a stronghold in this town. We, we find our world atomized, broken down. Instead of knowing friends and knowing community, we find ourselves increasingly isolated, increasingly not trusting people. And, in, and actually, you know, we, we, because we, we, we struggle in, in the world to think, what's my place? Where do I belong? Who loves me? We're, we're desperately insecure. And, and also that we become very cynical. Uh, if you say you believe something in our society, people think worry about that. If you say, I'm committed to something, people worry about that. Because basically, we just become cynical. Rather than saying, I believe that, we think anybody who's got sincere commitment, sincere faith, sincere passions, they must be slightly worrying. So, so we're just generally cynical. It's, less, it's more so in the UK than the States, but definitely we're like that. Doubtful and cynical, insecure and lonely, narcissistic and greedy, restless and exhausted. These are the kind of disciples the world creates. So uh, Worthington continues, Jesus steps into this world to contest for a different kind of life, the kind of life found in the disciples that he makes. Jesus promises to transform and he follows a new way, to bring them back from where their lives have been taken. And then he finishes with this. To obtain what our hearts ache for demands movement. We're to move away from something else, from everything else. Embedded in the life of discipleship is this mandate. We must move away from all other things to Christ. In Christ, we find all things. This is the journey of discipleship, And I found that really profound, that we need to move away from things. We can often feel, because we come to church, or we're a Christian, or we've got some kind of connection uh, with kind of people of faith, that actually, that we're therefore, by automatically a disciple of Jesus, that you, there was a point, some point in, in, in kind of your life, where you maybe put your hand up in a meeting, or you signed a piece of paper, or you, you I don't know, or you were baptized, or something happened, and you thought, that's it, at that point I became a disciple of Jesus. But actually, unless you proactively seek to continue to be a disciple of Jesus, the fact is the world will disciple you. We are not in a neutral situation where you just sign up uh, when you are in the Sunday school class at six years old and say, I came from a Christian family, and you will automatically end up 25 years down the line a disciple of Jesus. You won't because the world wants to disciple you. Paul says in Romans, uh, the world, will, do not be transformed to the pattern of this world. Uh, um, one writer says, do not let the world squeeze you into its shape. We live in what's called, uh, I think it's called choice architecture. Uh, I'm off my notes already, which is worrying. Uh, choice architecture which basically you feel that you're making real choices. You feel that you're making real choices, but actually the whole structure and architect of the choices you're making have already been made for you. It's a bit like when, you're, when Naomi says to our kids, what would you like for, for tea... The choice architecture is already made for them. There's going to be broccoli. There's going to be chickpeas. There's going to be lentils and couscous. There's going to be those things. The choice architecture is already... So, these, so the kids, we feel, have we got a free choice? We've got a free choice as long as we go with the what's already in the fridge. The choice architecture has already been made for us. So when I say, can we have chips? That is not in the choice architecture. <laughs> And you may think that it's quite amusing, but actually that is the world you live in. If you talk to people who do not have any kind of sense of spirituality, they feel that they're definitely free and making free choices, but the world has already structured the choice architecture for you. And that's the same for you. The world is no different. The world is in here, it's in you, we live in it, and unless we say, I'm going to move away from those things and be a disciple of Jesus, it isn't going to happen. I was going to ask you to turn to your neighbour and say, what do you think, God first, the sort of things we need to move away from in God first? But I'll just leave that as a rhetorical question, because you might feel quite exposed. But I was asking myself as I'm reading that quote, what things do I need to move away from towards Jesus to become a, 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 a more deep disciple of Jesus? Because the problem is, I would say, if we had to sum it up, we need to move away from project self. And I've said this before and i have said it again, the project self is a black hole life. The project self is a black hole life. You will never ever find yourself fulfilled with project self. One writer who wrote in the Times many years ago says that inside the heart of, of me is like this great big hole and he says no, no matter how many... Things I stuff into it, no matter how many relationships and family gatherings, no matter how many career progressions, no matter how many jobs and holidays and nice times, I stuff into this hole, the fact is, he says, it aches. Black hole living will never, ever get us there. We will just find that black hole living creates emptiness, it creates cynicism, it creates insecurity, it creates self-obsession, it creates greed and exhaustion, and black holes do what? if you were to enter the event horizon, they do what, scientists? Crush you. Crush you. What did you say? What? No one knows. Indeed, no one's ever come back from the black hole life. And, and I think that, that you know that is the black hole is a metaphor that I like to use for this life that is about project self. And discipleship with Jesus is about something very different. One writer is German, the more abundantly the benefits of civilization come streaming our way, the more abundantly the benefits of civilization come streaming our way, the emptier our lives become. With all its wealth and power, it only shows that the human heart in which God has put eternity, that's what it says in Ecclesiastes, in which God has put eternity, is so huge that all the world is too small To satisfy it, we've got to move away from these false promises. Jesus says this. If you know your Bible, finish it. What does it profit a person if he gains the whole world but loses his own? Is Jesus being mean? He's saying, no, Adam made that choice. Adam and Eve made that choice, if you know the Bible. They made that choice that actually it's going to be about project self and we'll f- everything that God has given us in this world will stuff into this black hole and the bottom line is it just produced sin and death. And I remember when the lottery first came out and we had these kind of instant millionaires, lots of them around, there were loads of stories about these people that became instant millionaires and how their lives just became more and more empty more and more spiraled down to nothing. And we see those almost like as an icon of this is what life is like. And I guess most of the people, most of the time, don't realize that that's still true for us. We think that just applies if you win a million pounds that you've got to be careful that the million pounds is going to destroy you and not make your life full. But actually the truth is that's true for us. One of the things that I, I observe working in Manchester where people are a lot more... Uh, a lot poorer, a lot more working class, they realise more quickly that life's not going to be all that they want. You know, when they're rehoused because of housing benefit and they haven't got a cooker and they haven't got anywhere, you know, they've got no carpets on the floor and they've got all those things. Yeah, there might be some faint hope of a life that's going to be better, but sooner or later they realize actually life isn't going to be that way. Do you know the hardest people to realize, the people that find it harder to realize that actually the more I have from the world, the less satisfied I am? Who are they? The people, the middle classes, the ones with the comfy lives. We find it very, it can almost take all our lives to realize, what have I chased after? You know that classic quote, um, no one says on their deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. The bottom line is that we're created with this capacity for eternity and only Jesus can fill it. So what I want to do, and that was a long intro, but I, I just felt as I read that opening chapter of the book, I thought it put it so well. What we want to do is walk through Mark's gospel, and I'm gonna pull out there's lots of things you could do as you walk through Mark's Gospel, and I'm gonna pull out the discipleship bits. Okay? But let's read Mark one and I'm gonna I'm gonna pick out some verses. I've selected verses not because I'm trying to prove a point, but because you would be here for four weeks if I did every verse. Every line of every verse. But let me just read. So Mark 1.1 1, 1 says, In the, the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. At that time, verse 9, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, Galilee and was baptized by John in the Do- Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw the heaven being torn open. And the Spirit descended on him, on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, who I love. With you I am well pleased, or with you I am delighted. At once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness. He was with the, is in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into a lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him, but when when he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and he followed them. And then let me just jump to verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus' companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Father, I just want to, I want you to speak to us about where we're centred this morning. I want you to speak to us about the things we need to move away from, the things we need to repent of, the things that we need to move towards to centre ourselves on you. And Lord, as we look at this chapter in the opening of Mark's Gospel that so centres on you, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would learn that discipleship lesson, that we must and we will centre ourselves on you, Lord Jesus. Amen. So my title this morning is Disciples, The Disciples' Centre. Okay, long intro, but you'd get that at the start of a series. Mark opens his Gospel making an amazing claim, not that just that Jesus is the Chosen One, the Messiah, or that He's God's Christ. They all mean the same thing. He says, The beginning beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark's not just making a statement about Jesus. He's actually hinting about where this story began. So let's see if we can get these. If you're a first century Jew, the, the hints would have been obvious. To us, they might be more subtle, but I'm sure we can get them. So, in the beginning, or the beginning, hints, you can answer. Where's the story? The creation, Genesis story. Mark, just like John, takes the reader to the beginning of the creation story, in the beginning was the word, so does Mark, in the beginning. And what does he say? He says it's the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who, we might, if you think about Genesis, who's the Son of God in Genesis? Adam what is mark is saying right at the beginning that this story is about a new creation this story is about a new humanity i want you he says as you journey with me through this story to understand that this story is about that jesus is the new creation jesus is the new man and if you if you took mark's gospel i just use this piece of notes for an example if you took mark's gospel and you imagine you wrote it all out If you folded it in half, right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, you have, this is the gospel of Jesus, Son of God. Right at the end of Mark's gospel, you have the centurion saying what? As he saw Jesus die. Truly, this is the Son of God. And right in the middle, on the fold, Peter says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So that's what Mark's doing. He's taking the events, but he structures the story. He's not making it up. He's writing it in the order it happens, but he's selecting the events to tell us that this is a story about new creation. This is a story about something new that God wants to do. This is a story about the Son of God coming to change things. And just to give you a clue, what happens to Jesus? The first thing that happens to Jesus is what? Baptized. Okay, baptized. Uh, What what do you use to to baptize? Water. Where do we see water at the beginning of the story? Before the world is made, it says the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. As Jesus goes down into the water, what do we see happening? The Spirit of God comes down, not hovering over the face of the waters, but hovering over Jesus, and a voice from heaven says, not let there be light, but this is my Beloved son, in whom I delight. What we're finding is, is that Mark's telling us there's something about this guy that we need to understand. And actually, he uses the term, He saw the heavens torn open." Interesting phrase. He didn't just say he saw the heavens open, he saw the heavens torn open. Where do, If anybody, where does we know, do we see something else torn open in this story? The curtain. Yeah, in fact, if you fold the Mark's Gospel, about the same place where he says the heaven's torn open, there's also a bit right at the end where it says, and when Jesus died on the cross, the, the curtain of the temple was torn open. Now, if you were a Jewish person, you would understand, if I asked you the question, if you were in a Sunday school class or you were learning from a rabbi, and I said, where is the center of the world, what would you say? If you're a British person, you'd say, it's a big iron and nickel thing right in the middle, wouldn't you? Yeah? But what would you say if you're Jewish? Does anyone know the answer? Or anyone guess at the answer? I'll give you a bad boy. The temple. In fact, the very holy, holy, the very center of the temple was like the, the, the center of everything. And what happened when Jesus died is that the curtain of the temple was torn into and and people could get into the center of everything and, and God could come out. In other words, there was no longer separation. But what's happening at Jesus' baptism is we're almost getting a little glimpse into the center of everything. We're getting a glimpse into the center of the of what? This is my beloved son in whom I delight. What are we getting a glimpse of? What's right at the center of the Holy of Holies? What's right at the very center of the cosmos? What? It's who, actually, is a better question. Yeah, who? It's that relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that's right at the very center of the cosmos. That's what the whole architecture, not choice architecture, but religious architecture in Jerusalem was about, and that is what the architecture of Mark's gospel is about, and that Guess what? The architecture of your life must be about. We're glimpsing right here into, the, into heaven, the centre of everything. We're glimpsing the loving, overflowing relationship between Father, Son and Spirit. Right here we see the heart of all reality, the essence of life. Each divine person, Father, Son and Spirit, harbours the other at the centre of his being. Each person envelops and encircles the other. There's a big hug at the middle of the universe. There's a huge embrace at the middle of the universe. There's a huge sense of, I give myself to you and you give yourself to me. A, that is the relationship at the center of everything. And Mark's taken us there. He's taken us to that moment and says, I want you to see that this is where life is full and rich. It's not the Garden of Eden, it's this place, this relationship. And then what does Mark's gospel then record? Jesus comes and says what? Well, actually, he's baptized, goes into the wilderness, and he's tempted by the devil. And who do we know who got tempted by the devil? You should be good at this by now. Adam and Eve got tempted by the devil, and how did they do? They did badly, made wrong choices, (laughs) Jesus does not choose project self like Adam and Eve. He chooses what? Project my father. Project my relationship with my father. And the other temptation is that Satan says, this, this it's never gonna work. And you face the same temptation as you go through your life, if you talk to people, this idea of self giving love, it's never gonna work. This idea of setting yourself on God, it's never gonna work. This idea of pouring yourself out on others, it's never going to work. It's never going to satisfy you. But the lie is, actually, that other things will satisfy you. But what, what Mark is saying and what I'm saying is, this is the thing. This is the relationship. This is the centre where we need to be centred. Jesus comes and says what then? I'm trying to keep you involved. I don't know if you're slipping or sleeping. or What does he say next? He goes out into the, out into the wilderness. If you haven't got a Bible, you're probably struggling. That's the, the downside of PowerPoint Bible. He goes into the wilderness, and then the next thing, Jesus, the first words we hear Jesus say are what? Time has come. Come on, Paul. The time has come. Repent and believe the good news of God. When you hear, hear the word repent, what do you think? Turn to your neighbor. If you hear the word repent, what do you think? If I came to you and said, you need to repent, what would you think? You've done wrong, and I'm saying you need to get it sorted. We can see, kind of repent and believe as you have not done what you... I'll sh- oh, point it, John, just to make him feel bad. You haven't done what you should do, and you haven't believed what you should do. Now repent. And we can feel that God's this finger-wagging dog. Sorry, I love you, mate. This finger-wagging God, but actually it's not a finger-wagging, it's an invitation it's an invitation to turn away from something. That's what repent means. To move away from something and center yourself on Him. The word gospel actually isn't a, isn't a Bible word to, first and foremost. The word gospel used, meant an announcement of good news. It meant announcing good news. So if the new emperor came to the throne, there'd be the gospel of the uh, emperor Claudius. If, if, we want a great, if the Romans want a great victory, there'd be the gospel of the victory in Germania. The good news. The good news, that's history-making. The good news, that's uh, life-shaping news. That's what gospel meant. So when, when Mark uses that word gospel, he's saying there's something happened, there's someone come, there's something that's an announcement of good news. Jesus comes announcing himself as what? King of the universe. He announces himself as the king, the center of all things. Jesus comes announcing what? Victory to come on the cross against all the black hole living and self-fulfillment project. He victory over sin and guilt and shame and emptiness and death. I think we all live with the good news. We all live with the gospel story. We all live with the gospel story. So these would be gospels. These would be good news I now pronounce you man and wife. That's a gospel. It's a life-changing, history-making event. Or how about, congratulations, you have a little boy. That's a gospel. How about, your application for the job has been successful. We all live, believe, looking for a gospel. We all think that actually, if there's some good news that's told to us, that's going to be the center of it all. So when you're single, you think, if I get married then that will be provide the center. It will provide something in the hole that's missing. And then you know what happens is you're on holiday, and me and Naomi, we're on holiday, our very first holiday, uh, not the one that's expensive, but the one that's cheap afterwards, so camping in France. And she says to me, I want to have children. I just want to have children. I say, Naomi, we've only been married six months. Just, but I want to have children. I want to have children. And there's a sense where there's a next thing, actually, you know, I'm, I, even though I'm lovely, I, I'm not good enough for her. I'm, there's not, I'm not enough. You know that, it's, well, that. Do you know the line from Bridget Jones' Diary, where she says to Tom Cruise, "No, it's not. It's not Tom Cruise. No, it's not Bridget Jones' Diary. It's called... Now this is a problem. I think. It... Okay, tell us the line. i think thinking of it. Well done, Vic. You complete me. What's the film? It's not Top Gun. It is Tom Cruise. Jerry Maguire. Well done. You're the quizmaster. Well done. And and she's they're having this big embrace and 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 she says to him, "You had me from hello, yeah." It's all right. You had me from hello. Tom Cruise obviously gets the scriptwriter to write that because he's small and insecure. Uh, you had me from hello. And then and then as they hug, she says. You complete me. Nice, but not true. Not true. However, nice Jerry Maguire is, Tom Cruise, however, beautiful your wife, daughter, children, however, successful your career, however, many times you've heard that, well done, Mr. Earl, you you've, you've been successful in your job application, the bottom line is you will not be completed. That gospel may bring you temporary joy, but it will not complete you. So what happens is Jesus asks you to move away from those things, and he says, what? What's the next thing we hear him say? He walks along the, by the lake, and he calls Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and he says these words, what? Come, follow me. The time has come. Come, follow me. Now, now you need to make the choice. Where are you going to be centered? Where are you going to be centered? What were they centered on? fish and more than that. In fact, if you listened last week, um, Bruce used this, and I was really frustrated. No, he, he said, "What well, if you were a first century Jew, your identity was in what? Family. Thank you. Well, listened. family. What's your identity? And if you were to turn to the person next to you and say, I am, what would you say? Why don't you try? I am. So it's, we do that. Most often, that conversational answer, most often that conversational answer goes, what? I am a job, isn't it? It's your job. Identity in our culture is about job, because job says shorthand label for educational background and possessions. Your identity in Cheltenham is more likely to be in your educational background, your job, and your possessions than it is to be in your family. But our identity is still in our families. But what do Pete, to James, and John? Uh, uh, what do they do when Jesus says, "Come, follow me"? It says what? Uh, once they left their nets, they leave who? Who does he leave? It, it, it makes it. What's the guy's name? It's not the magic roundabout, but there's a clue there. They leave Zebedee in the boat. They leave him in the boat. Sorry, I'm showing my age now. They leave him in the boat. To leave your father was to say, actually, my identity is no longer in you. Yeah? Some of you may be much more wedded to your family and to say leave your family is a huge thing because your whole identity is in your family. I mean, you're, I'm talking about your, your biological family. And to say leave your family and follow me, So, how can Jesus ask that question? Or, But for us to say I want you to sell all your money and quit your career and give it to the poor, that, that's much harder in our culture, isn't it? Sell all your money. Sell all your possessions. When I'm extemporizing, we don't know where we're going to go. It sounds like fanaticism. Cults and religious nutcases say, leave your family, leave your family and follow me. Leave your possessions and your job and your career and your identity and find your identity in me. It sounds like fanaticism, doesn't it? It sounds like the sort of things that cults make you do. You know, one of the things that you, when you meet in a school hall and you, you call God first rather than saint-whatevers and meet in an Anglican church building, people think, are you a cult? And actually, if you, you, because one of the things that can happen is that people are scared of any kind of thing that they don't know, because, but they're also scared of anything that smacks of fanaticism. In fact, the word fanatic doesn't make you... Would you say you're a fanatic? Of anything. Yeah, football fanatic. Yeah? Whatever. But it, fanaticism s- strikes of dangerous stuff, doesn't it? Yeah? It strikes of, of, of disturbingly unbalanced kind of stuff. In, in fact, if you say you believe something, like I said earlier, then you're seen as a fundamentalist. What? You believe that God created the world? You must be a fundamentalist. That makes you a dangerous terrorist. Isn't that, the, isn't that where we are? and fanaticism sounds like wow this is dangerous but jesus actually he asked them leave your family leave your career find a new identity in me and it sounds devastating but they did just then and we can think wow this dangerous fanaticism I, I i couldn't possibly do that maybe just jesus means it in theory you mean you leave your family in theory or or you you, you leave your career in theory you just put it second you might just paper thin Jesus at the top but actually anything that looks like Jesus and his cause well that's right down here we think that's dangerous it must be just in theory or we think well only a cult would ask such things Tim Keller who's a very very balanced writer from New York long quote from him let me just read that and then we definitely would down he says people in our culture it's from this book here called, which is a journey through Mark's gospel, which I've taken some, but not all of my ideas. Just very good. Mark's gospel, The King's Cross by Tim Keller. People in our culture are afraid of fanaticism, he says, and for good reason. Fanatics carry out violence and are condemning and self-righteous or even abusive. Most people today see religious as a spectrum of belief. On one end are people who say they're religious but don't really believe or live the core of their religion. On the other end, you've got the fanatics, that people are too religious, who are who overbelieve or are overzealous. What's the solution to fanaticism? He asks. Many would say, "Well, can't we be in the middle? Everything in moderation, not too zealous, not too uncommitted." Is that what Jesus is asking when he asks us to recenter our lives on Him? You know the answer, but you struggle with the answer. What is the answer? No, he doesn't say just be nicely in the middle, does he? Tim Keller goes on. So is that the way following Jesus works? Just Jesus advocate and everything in moderation? I, I find this passage really hard. I found a book called Difficult Things Jesus Said. And this is in there. It's a difficult thing. Jesus says to a large crowd, anyone, anyone, that would be anyone. In the Greek, that means anyone. Anyone who comes to me and does not hate, oh, fanatic, father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters. Yes, even their own life. He's saying, your identity in those things that give you identity in first century Palestine, you've got to hate those. Yes, even though in life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Keller goes on. Sound moderate? Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, he doesn't say to the crowd, look, most of you can be moderate and half-hearted. All I need is a few good men and women who really want to go all the way with me being my disciples. He says, I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so enduringly that all other attachments in your life look like hate. It's not just that the church thing, uh, you know, the Jesus thing just slides in marginally above as a veneer above all your other priorities. He's saying, no, you stitch those priorities. Paul says, I consider everything as refuse, rubbish, compared to the surpassing greatness of him. think about it. If you say, I'll follow Jesus, if my career is thriving, if my health is good, if my family are happy, if my time and money are untouched, if I gain power or significance, then the thing after the if is what you're really following. Get that? It's your real master, your real goal, what you're really centered on, your real God. Jesus' call to us is radical. He calls us to recenter ourselves on Him. As, a Jesus, as the disciples do their first day at the office, as it were, their first day at work, Jesus does all sorts of things that belong to the new creation. Healing the sick... Bind it, uh, make, you know, driving out evil, doing all those kind of things. And actually, he's already a minor celebrity. Jesus is already a minor celebrity. He's already got huge crowds following him. And already you can feel the disciples saying, if you follow Jesus, you get what? Health, power, significance. But what happens, and this is where I want to finish here, Mark's taking us to a place in the creation story. He uses these words. Tell me where we think we're going. Evening, morning. It's a creation story, isn't it? Remember that? It was evening, it was morning, the first day. Evening, morning, second day. What G- Mark's taking us is, takes us to day seven. What happens on day seven? God rests. God rests says, while very early in the morning, while it was very dark, Jesus got up, left his house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. They didn't quite get it. Look, Jesus, you're a minor Christian celebrity. We've been trying to text you, your smartphone's off, your Twitter account and your Facebook, they're down. Your emails, you're not answering your emails. There's all these pastoral problems, all these people wanting to see you, and you're just not there. Because he's not centred on any of those things. If you follow a politician, then you, you make them by your following them. You make them prime minister by your votes a celebrity. You make them a celebrity by your adulation. But for Jesus, he's saying, no, you don't make me these things by your following. I make you like me as you follow. This is Jesus resting. He's resting as his father rested. This is a daily moment, is a window on his life. In that moment, it's like that moment in his baptism, it's like that moment in eternity where he finds himself not ticking the box, I've read my Bible, my essential 100 and prayed my prayers so my three, what giving me a hard time. He's saying this is the place I'm centred. This is the place I'm centred. I push everything else away to be here with my Father. He moves away from a house to go to his true home. He goes from a solitary place, not to being alone, but to enjoy himself with his father. He moves away from everything to be enveloped and centred on his father's love. You know, if you're tired and exhausted, what it says is, you haven't made that move. So I feel it. And you know, when you're tired and exhausted, it's because that's... that. Wrongly is your censor. And don't look down on me as I'm honest, because I know you also have an if. My family, my relationships, my career, my pride, my significance, my things. Those ifs. And we've not centred ourselves on him. And as I'm preparing this, I thought, I don't want to be the the God that's holding up my own universe. Do you understand what the metaphor there? It's just like God's holding up the universe. He's the one who holds all things together. He's the center of everything. He's the one who gives me rest. He's the one who, who fools and satisfies me. But, and, but if I center myself away from him, you will find yourself restless and tired. Our restless and tired world is there because it's not centered on him. Father, yes, uh, I want to be centered on you. And I don't feel bad about it. I just feel his invitation. Come and repent. Come and move away from those other things. This is what I read at the beginning. To obtain what our hearts ache for demands movement. We have to move away from something else. From everything else. Embedded in the life of discipleship is this mandate. We must move away from all other things to Christ. In Christ we will find all things. This is the journey of discipleship. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk